what's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. The Department of Justice plans to sue West Virginia Governor Jim Justice's coal businesses. Republicans are crying foul. Find out why. How to lower the rising cost of childcare. Liberal and conservative senators don't agree on the issue. We bring you highlights from a hearing. Here's a claim Maine could become a capital for child sex trafficking under a new transgender bill. We examine this with the director of an organization trying to reclaim local control on this issue. The U.S. and EU are working at a voluntary code of conduct for artificial intelligence. That's amid growing calls for guardrails on the technology. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is out of the Midwest. It's the latest in a string of challenges to communities that have rail lines going through them as railway operators are still struggling to keep their trains on the tracks. A train carrying hazardous materials derailed in northwestern Minnesota yesterday. Thankfully, there were no immediate signs of leaks, but the accident forced a highway closure. The Canadian Pacific train consisted of 25 cars. Some tank cars were carrying an unspecified flammable liquid. It derailed in the town of Lancaster on its way to Canada. No leaks or injuries were reported, but precautionary measures were being taken in case leaks did happen. The derailment follows another Canadian Pacific freight train incident a day prior. That train was also transporting hazardous materials. It went off the tracks near Balfour, North Dakota. No spills or injuries were reported. Republicans are blasting the Department of Justice. The issue is its planned lawsuit against the coal empire of West Virginia Governor Jim Justice II. Justice is challenging embattled Senator Joe Manchin for his U.S. Senate seat. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the accusations. The DOJ announced it would sue Justice's 13 coal companies on May 31st. The governor's son, James Justice III, is the primary controller of many of the businesses. The suit says that A&G Coal Corporation and the other companies owe money for more than 130 violations. The complaint claims that a bunch of issues have gone unresolved. Those include preventing surface water from eroding roads, clearing rock and debris from roads after a rock fall, and properly disposing of waste. Governor Justice expressed that he's ready to stand his ground. When something comes up and someone rears an ugly head, do we run and jump in a hole and die? We don't do that. Justice says he firmly believes the charges are related to his Senate candidacy. The Biden administration is aware of, of the fact that uh, with a win for the U.S. Senate and everything, we could very well flip the Senate. The Republican governor recently announced his intention to run for Senator Joe Manchin's Senate seat. Manchin describes himself as a conservative Democrat, but he is still well to the left of deep red West Virginia. Government agencies, you know, sometimes can surely react, and, uh, and, and, and this, could be, this could be something in regard to that. Justice's campaign immediately condemned the lawsuit, calling it politically motivated. Other Republicans reacted. A Republican Senatorial Committee spokesperson said, Joe Biden's Department of Justice has gone totally rogue. Democrats weaponizing the federal government to attack the family of a Republican Senate candidate is a complete abuse of power. Senator Ron Johnson said, Unfortunately, we cannot trust Merrick Garland's DOJ to apply justice equally in America. While Senator Ted Cruz called the charges utterly brazen, when I said the Biden DOJ is the most political and partisan DOJ in history, 
I wasn't kidding. The DOJ did not return a request for comment by broadcast time. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Liberal senators are calling for more funding for child care to lower the cost for Americans. However, their conservative colleagues point out why that might not actually solve the problem. Here are the highlights from a hearing. We significantly increased funding for child care. Not enough, but we made some progress. Senator Bernie Sanders pushing for more federal funding for child care. He's the chairman of the Senate Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, which held a hearing Wednesday. You know what child care is in D.C.? It's about $30,000 a year, which is very, very high. Imagine $30,000 a year if you got a two-year-old. The ranking Republican member, Senator Bill Cassidy, is a physician. He said to his fellow lawmakers, calling for more funding. Don't just do something, think. We could throw a lot more money at it and see what happens. Why don't we sit and think? Cassidy pointed out that increased federal assistance for higher education ended up leading to skyrocketing costs for students. He says similar things happen with housing. When the federal government threw additional money at housing programs, the funding was largely swallowed up by a bureaucracy in charge rather than actually meeting those with um, uh, those in need on the ground. In other child-related news, a legal advocacy group is filing a lawsuit against the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families, or DCF. That's after DCF took both sons away from their parents. This happened after a hospital visit when one of them had a fever. The lawsuit highlights the troubled U.S. child welfare system. Did a chest x-ray because he was struggling to get enough oxygen and they wanted to check for pneumonia. Uh, and that's when they found a weeks-old, nearly healed rib fracture. Citing the fracture, hospital officials reported potential abuse. After speaking with the boy's grandmother, they learned the injury may have happened as she removed the boy from a car seat. He slipped and she caught him with one arm. However, DCF allegedly took both sons away and custody was only restored after three months. The couple now lives in Idaho. About one million F-35 combat aircraft spare parts worth $85 million. That's what the Department of Defense has reportedly lost track of. The Government Accountability Office released a critical report on the matter. The Accountability Office says the F-35 program doesn't keep track of what's in its global spare parts pool, which can also be located at secondary facilities. The F-35 program is a multinational effort, but it doesn't have an accountable record system. This means it can't measure real-time changes to inventory, including the location and value of parts. The missing parts have all gone missing over about a five-year period. Two Senate Democrats want the Biden administration to take another look at whether airplane seats are too cramped. Legislation from Senators Tammy Duckworth and Tammy Baldwin would require the Federal Aviation Administration to take action, specifically to conduct evacuation tests with more realistic conditions and create standards for the size of seats and the space between them. It is very much long overdue. The standard that the FAA is using was set in the 1960s, and the fact of the matter is air travel has changed a lot since the 60s. Uh, there are a lot of folks on board, for example, with carry-on luggage because we can't, many people can't check their luggage anymore because there's additional fees. Uh, the FAA doesn't test, uh, do these tests where they include carry-on luggage. They're concerned about safe evacuation in an emergency. Nonprofit organization Flyer Rights has unsuccessfully pushed the FAA to regulate a minimum seat size. Among other issues, they cite concerns about blood clotting. The FAA declined to comment on the matter. 
The bill to suspend the debt ceiling and avoid a catastrophic default has passed the House and is advancing to the Senate. I wanted to learn more about this compromise, so I spoke to an expert in political economy. Joining me now is Samuel Gregg, Distinguished Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Samuel, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. Do you think the provisions in the debt limit bill now heading to the Senate are reasonable? Well, I certainly think they're about what we can expect, given the the politics, frankly. So if you mean by reasonable, what can be reasonably achieved, given the current complexion of the administration, representatives in the Senate, then yes, it's reasonable insofar as it's, an, it's enough to get the type of consensus that it received in the House of Representatives yesterday. If the question is about uh, the, the economics of it, then that's a much more mixed picture. There are things, I think, in this bill which are worthy of support. There are other things which I would argue are more questionable. And, of course, we saw that reflected in the fact that there are plenty of people in the Democrat and the Republican Party who voted last night against uh, this particular bill because they're dissatisfied with not just the politics but also some of the economic interpretations upon what they think this bill will mean. Samuel, what do you think is the most questionable part of this bill? I think the most questionable part of this bill is that in the long term, it's not doing enough in terms of bringing spending under control. Because let's remember that the reason we have this debt ceiling is to put a restraint on using government to engage in spending that it hasn't paid for in terms of taxes and revenue. So we're going to be having this discussion uh, down the line, so to speak, one more time and one more time after that and one more time after that, because the bill itself, I don't think, really faces us up to the fact that we're living off debt as a country, especially the federal government. And at some point, there is going to be a reckoning for that. So while I'm very glad to see different provisions in this bill, cutting spending in particular areas, adding things like work requirements, et cetera, I think that's all good. But the sort of deeper fundamental cause as to why we find ourselves going through this cycle every couple of years, I don't think has been fundamentally addressed. Yes, it is a recurring problem that needs to be addressed. On the topic of work requirements, Republicans say this is going to help people move from welfare to work, whereas Democrats say that some of these people are experiencing a burden now in finding employment that pays enough to sustain them. How does this match up with the historic unemployment rate right now that's very low under the Biden administration? Well, the the unemployment rate is indeed very low uh, compared to in the past, obviously. We need to keep in mind, however, that there are a lot of people who are actively choosing not to work. We've seen a significant number of young men, for example, between the ages of 26 and 35, effectively having checked out of the workforce for, well, really, since COVID, some would argue. Some would even argue going even further back. And that's because, in part, because they've been able to string enough together in terms of different forms of welfare payments to basically uh, live relatively comfortably. So I think that's an important context we have to keep in mind when we talk about this issue of the, of the level of employment. I'm glad it's down where it is, but there are some contextual factors that we need to take into account. 
Uh, I think that this bill, in terms of requiring work for those in recipient of certain forms of welfare payments, not all, I might add, but certain forms of welfare payments, uh, will encourage those people, some of those people at least, to realize that this should not be the norm. If they're capable of working, then they should be out there looking for work. And these work requirements, in some senses, will encourage them to realize that you can't expect to be receiving federal assistance, or even state assistance, without some type of corresponding obligation. Now, will this make it harder for some people to find work? I I'm skeptical of that claim, because it seems to me that if they're not looking for work, if they're not even looking for work and they're receiving welfare, then that in itself, I think, tells us that there's something else going on, that a work requirement would at least alert people to the fact that they actually should be looking for employment rather than assuming that this welfare will just keep coming forever. Being comfortable on the government benefits as opposed to from the sweat off your own back is concerning. Samuel Gregg, Distinguished Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, it was great hearing from you. Thanks for having me on. Coming up, Facebook parent company Meta threatens to hide its Facebook news feed feature from California residents if the state passes a new law. Ousted California Democratic Attorney Chesa Boudin gets a new job. He was recalled from office just last year. We'll have more for you in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. We're taking you over to the Northeast. Maine is in the spotlight over protections for cross-sex treatments. According to David Kendall, the director of advocacy for Parental Rights Maine, one recent bill would make Maine a sanctuary state for people transporting transgender children from out of state. Have a listen to this conversation with the head of another organization pushing back on this issue. Joining us now is Sean McBriarty, Director of Special Projects with the Maine First Project and also podcaster host of the Maine Source of Truth. Sean, it's great to have you with us. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Can you first start by giving us an update on the three bills in Maine around transgenderism? Yeah, we've got, uh, we're, we're, Maine is in rough shape here. We're currently seeking, you know, uh, support to try to fight back on some of these bills. One of them has already passed, uh, LD-394. It was called Chapter 117, and basically what that did was allowed social workers and school counselors to keep secrets from parents. Um, another bill, which is LD-535, uh, an act to increase the necessary medical care for certain uh, minors, provides 16 and 17-year-olds chemical castration drugs, otherwise known as cross-sex hormones or hormone blockers. And uh, this does that with, with the parental uh, really not having any objection to the situation. And they also really make it uh, provide immunity to the medical provider for these drugs. So the tough part here in Maine is this uh, bill was actually supported by a Republican on the committee. And his quote was, although he respects parental rights, he believes someone who has reached the age of 16 has a certain amount of self-determination and then he goes on to say that gender-affirming care uh, in, is really not a natural act. So if, you, if you're waiting, if you're waiting for puberty in this Republican's mind, it's not a natural act. And we all know that puberty is a natural act. We've all gone through it. 
but it's complete insanity what's going on. And then the, the really the coup de grace, the left's uh, LD 1735, this is an act to safeguard gender-affirming care as well. But in this case, um, there's no parent, there's no state that is safe from LD 1735 because you lose the complete jurisdiction of your child and really the protection of your child with this bill. It is a lot of concern surrounding this, given that 16-year-olds can't drink legally, they can't smoke legally, but yet the possibility for them to change their gender is drawing a lot of pushback from parents. In your view, is Kendall's claim that Maine could become a child sex trafficking capital if that other bill passes true? Yeah, I, I believe it's really, it's trans-tourism is what I think these folks in Maine, the, the Democrats here in Maine are trying to do. And uh, really, again, there's no protection. So the way that it reads right now, the uh, prohibitions, the law enforcement agency may not knowingly make or participate in an arrest or participate in the extradition of an individual pursuant to an out-of-state arrest warrant for violations of another state's law providing or receiving gender-affirming gender care. So, for example, if you're in Florida and, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis had said, hey, look, we're not going to allow gender-affirming care, if you are either kidnapped or you get on a bus or someone places you on a bus and brings you to Maine, that's the trans-trafficking aspect. And it's really horrible. This bill, essentially, you mentioned it, you know, kids can't get a tattoo, but this bill, the way it's written, Kevin, it, it's going to allow people, minors, minor children, to make their own determinations on their own health care. There's nowhere else that we allow that in any civil society. Barring these judges from cooperating with this extradition warrant certainly would have a big effect on families, especially considering that families experience strained relationships often when a child transitions due to the lack of acceptance by parents. Sean McBriarty, director of the special projects with the Maine First Project, it is so great to have your analysis. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Facebook parent company Meta is threatening to pull news feeds on its platforms for California residents. That's because the state wants it to buy all the news articles that appear on the platform. The Journalism Preservation Act would require big tech companies to pay news outlets a journalism usage fee. The proposed law is aimed at reversing a decline in California's local news sector. The Meta Policy Communications Director responded via Twitter. He said they would remove news from Facebook and Instagram, quote, rather than to pay into a slush fund that primarily benefits big out-of-state media companies under the guise of aiding California publishers. State Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks tweeted that Meta's threat is a scare tactic that they've tried to deploy unsuccessfully in every country that's attempted this. The social media giant has been waging a fight over similar compensation for news publishers at the federal level in Congress and in other countries. Border officials in California find over $38 million of meth hidden in kale, of all things. Border Patrol detained the semi-truck driver over the find. The drugs weighed almost 6,000 pounds and were in over 250 packages within the vegetable shipment. A photo from U.S. Customs and Border Protection shows a cardboard box with drug packages sitting in the middle of kale leaves. Officials made the discovery at the Ote Mesa cargo facility. Another photo shows big bins full of bags and containers of the drugs. In Texas, border officials found almost $2 million worth of cocaine on a commercial bus at Hidalgo International Bridge. 50 packages were discovered that weighed over 130 pounds altogether. 
Homeland Security is investigating. And more from California, ousted San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin has a new position. He's now founding executive director of a new criminal law and justice center at the University of California Berkeley Law School. Boudin was removed from his district attorney position in a recall vote in 2022. He announced his new position in an op-ed. He also announced he would not seek elected office in 2024. He said that the new role is consistent with his lifelong commitment to ending mass incarceration and coming up with new solutions for public safety. Opponents say Boudin's policies as district attorney are part of the reason San Francisco saw a surge in violent crime. And on the economy, U.S. banking industry troubles are causing deposits to fall dramatically. The FDIC released a comprehensive view of the banking industry's health. Here's more. U.S. bank deposits declined by a record amount in the first quarter of this year, the most in nearly 40 years. Banks lost $472 billion, according to a new report by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC. The decline was the largest since the FDIC began collecting quarterly data. This comes as concern still lingers within the U.S. banking industry. The FDIC added four new firms on its problem bank list. The list now has 43 firms on it. Here's FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg. The recent banking stress amplified the outflow of deposits from the banking system, causing total deposits to decline for the fourth consecutive quarter and at a faster rate than in prior quarters. However, deposit outflows have moderated since the end of the first quarter. The FDIC provides deposit insurance to depositors and banks. Currently, the standard insurance limit is $250,000 per depositor per insured bank. This means that if a member bank fails, the FDIC steps in to protect depositors. The decline in deposits was primarily from uninsured funds that were above the $250,000 threshold. The full impact of the banking turmoil may not be seen until the FDIC reports its second quarter results. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy has a bone to pick with Tesla CEO Elon Musk. He found some comments Musk reportedly made in China to be troubling. He doesn't support a decoupling from China, but instead called the U.S. and communist China conjoined twins. Last October, inexplicably, out of nowhere, no one's asking the CEO of an electric car maker to offer his opinion on this necessarily, or are they? saying that Taiwan should reunify with China. Said that last October, literally days later, actually gets a nice little attaboy pat on the back from the CCP when they give special tax benefits in Shanghai. The presidential candidate said he has been one of the most vocal supporters of Musk's effort to transform Twitter, but feels there is a real risk to the U.S. when the CCP turns prominent American business leaders and celebrities into what he called puppets to advance their agenda. Ramaswamy mentioned Tim Cook, Larry Fink, LeBron James, as well as Musk. The Republican says that U.S. businesses consistently criticize the U.S. without saying a peep about China. Musk departed Shanghai Thursday morning, wrapping up the two-day trip to China. Coming up, the U.S. promises more weapons for Ukraine, as Russia said it thwarted attempted incursions across the border. At a robotics show in London, a humanoid robot is asked about a potential nightmare scenario involving AI. Find out what its reply was right here on NTD News Today.
Welcome back. The Biden administration announced a new military aid package for Ukraine, but stressed that U.S. weapons shouldn't be used to strike within Russia. President Joe Biden has approved a new package of military aid for Ukraine that totals up to $300 million amid Russia's continued airstrikes on Kiev. The United States is going to continue to support Ukraine, help give them things that they need uh, to better defend themselves. The batch of equipment will include additional munitions for drones and an array of other weapons. The announcement comes after Moscow was attacked by drones on Tuesday. Kirby said the U.S. doesn't support attacks inside Russia. We certainly uh, don't want to see attacks inside Russia that are, that are, are being uh, propagated, that are being conducted uh, using uh, U.S. supplied equipment. Russia said on Thursday its troops thwarted three attempted incursions near its western border with Ukraine, killing 30 Ukrainian fighters. However, a paramilitary group of ethnic Russians that supports Ukraine released footage showing Russian military equipment being destroyed inside Russia. Kiev denies direct involvement, but Moscow accuses it of masterminding the raids and the drone attacks on Moscow. Meanwhile, Ukraine said it shot down 10 ballistic and cruise missiles. But a nine-year-old girl, her mother and another woman died when debris fell near an air raid shelter they had been trying to enter. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky took part in the European Political Community Summit in Moldova, ahead of an expected counteroffensive against Russia's invasion. He pressed his case for Ukraine to be part of NATO. Ukraine is ready to be in NATO. We are waiting when NATO will be ready to host and to see and to have Ukraine. Meanwhile, Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, has warned British public officials are now legitimate military targets because of the UK's support for Ukraine. It comes after British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly said that Ukraine had the right to project force beyond its borders to resist the Russian invasion. An alleged Russian spy whale was spotted in Swedish waters, according to advocacy group One Whale. The beluga, nicknamed Valdemir, is famous for sightings like this one in Norway in 2019. Experts say it's possible the Russian military trained him after he was spotted wearing a harness with camera mounts. One whale says Valdemir recently swam away from Oslo, where boat traffic posed a dangerous situation for him. The group praises Swedish authorities for closing a bridge and taking other actions to keep the whales safe. Belugas are a protected species. Secretary of State Antony Blinken today called on Kosovo and Serbia to take immediate steps to reduce tensions. We support the process of Euro-Atlantic integration for Kosovo and for Serbia. But the current escalation hinders rather than helps the efforts to move in that direction. He spoke after a meeting of NATO foreign ministers in Norway. Blinken said many allies expressed concern about the tense situation in northern Kosovo. Unrest in Kosovo's north has intensified since ethnic Albanian mayors took office in the region's Serb-majority area. Ethnic Serbs boycotted the April election, allowing ethnic Albanians to win. But Kosovo Prime Minister Albin Kurti said today he will not back down from a decision to install the mayors. One of Australia's most decorated soldiers lost a defamation lawsuit against three newspapers that accuse him of involvement in the murder of six Afghans while on deployment. An Australian judge ruled that the articles published in 2018 were substantially true about a number of war crimes committed by Ben Robert Smith, a former member of the Special Forces. The newspapers presented other soldiers and former soldiers as witnesses in court. 
Legal experts say that the civil hearing effectively played out as the country's first war crimes trial. Australian civil courts require a lower threshold to prove accusations than criminal courts do. Robert Smith has not been charged with any offenses. He was seen as a national hero after winning several top military honors, including the Victoria Cross, for his actions during six tours of Afghanistan from 2006 to 2012. Robots are entering the debate over the rise of artificial intelligence. At this week's London Robot Show, an android described what it saw as the worst-case scenario for human-AI interaction. Here's the story. Amica is one of the star exhibits at the International Conference on Robotics and Automation. Integrated with OpenAI's ChatGPT3, the humanoid robot can answer any question posed to it. For example, it was challenged to depict the most nightmarish scenario that AI may hold for humanity. The most nightmare scenario I can imagine with AI and robotics is a world where robots have become so powerful that they are able to control or manipulate humans without their knowledge. This could lead to an oppressive society where the rights of individuals are no longer respected. Amica is built by British company Engineered Arts. Equipped with dozens of actuators in its head, it can produce rich facial expressions like a real human. The company said their ultimate goal is to create a robot that can integrate with human society. For humanoid robots, social interaction is exactly what makes sense. It's all about observing what people do and trying to reflect those kind of behaviors with a robot. Make it natural, make it intuitive. Elsewhere at the show, the Shadow Robot Company showcased their robotic arms. The machinery is sensitive enough to manipulate small objects, just like a human hand. And students from a German university presented Nimro, an avatar system that's operated with VR glasses. It was the winner of a $5 million prize in the avatar competition. Meanwhile, at a meeting of the EU-US Trade and Technology Council, or TTC, senior officials are drafting a voluntary code of conduct for AI. One of the things we focused our conversation on today is how we can use the TTC to help advance, uh, at least in the near term, voluntary codes of conduct that need to be open to a, a wide universe of countries so that we can mitigate some of the potential downsides and amplify the upsides of this extraordinary technology. European Commission Vice President Margaret Vestager said the voluntary code would bridge the gap while the bloc works on groundbreaking AI rules in the coming two to three years. Food prices continue to soar in France. Consumers say they have to tighten their belts just to get by. The government is now trying to bring retailers back to the negotiating table. Here's the story. The French take pride in their cuisine, but one statistic is killing appetites. Food price inflation jumped to a record high of near 16% in March, dropping just 2% in May. This trend is forcing a change in people's shopping habits. Clearly, I go with what's the cheapest. I look at things on sale, especially generic brands. I really compare the prices per kilo or per item, which I didn't necessarily do before. A recent survey shows that more than half of consumers have stopped buying certain products in recent months. Over 40% switched to cheaper products, cutting back on meat and fish purchases in particular. We consume a bit less in terms of volume, but we still try to find something of quality that suits us. 
So less meat, a lot less fish, which is such a luxury nowadays. So we've made changes and we think quite a lot about what we choose to buy. Food makers and retailers agree to raise prices by an average of 10% after negotiations in March. Both sides pointed to a surge in input prices and wage increases due to the war in Ukraine. Global raw materials like wheat and animal feed have seen a recent decline, but this trend has yet to trickle down to consumers. I wish for prices that have to go down, meaning those of which raw material costs have drastically gone down, such as pasta with the wheat prices that have gone down, that this is reflected in the supermarket aisles. French finance minister Bruno Le Maire says the food industry has reaped huge profits and that big companies have made commitments to resume commercial negotiations. But he says major food producers have failed to live up to that commitment. There are two choices. Either the big food companies keep their promises on negotiations in the coming days, or I will use taxes to recover the profits that they should be passing on to consumers. Aside from France, countries ranging from Italy to Britain are also considering special measures to rein in rising food prices. Italian authorities yesterday displayed hundreds of artifacts that were stolen from secret excavation sites in Italy after being returned from the United Kingdom. This recovery operation involves around 750 archaeological artifacts robbed in Italy and its islands. The recovery is very important for the quantity of the finds, but also for their variety. The artifacts can be dated between the 8th century BC and the Middle Ages, and their value is estimated at $13 million. Among the most valuable pieces are a bronze tripod table, some marble male heads from the imperial age, and precious jewelry made with bronze and amber. The artifacts were in the possession of an English company in liquidation, which was attributable to a renowned art trafficker. The Italian Ministry of Culture said the stolen artifacts were recovered after lengthy negotiations and police had to find the documentation and research to prove the validity of the objects. Still to come, Venezuelan miners face brutal working conditions. An explosion of legal and illegal operations draws attention from human rights advocates. An international climate conference in Paris is focusing on plastic pollution. Researchers in London separate plastic products using a special camera, so stay tuned for that story when we come back. Welcome back. Venezuela's soil holds a valuable resource, gold. But for the miners, the conditions are brutal. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the potential human rights violations. In 2016, the Venezuelan government established a massive mining zone in the state of Bolivar to diversify its revenue. Since then, there's been an explosion of legal and illegal mining operations. They're looking for gold, diamonds, and copper. The mining arc of Orinoco is plagued with violence and shrouded in secrecy. Many mines operate outside the law. Others bend the rules. Most of the mining they're doing in Venezuela and in Bolivar is chaotic. It's these small miners using mercury, and that's where they lose 80% of the gold. At an underground mine in Bolivar, operators use dynamite to loosen rocks some 260 feet below ground. Miners descend daily in the sweltering heat with no safety gear. 
By law, about half of legally extracted gold must go to the authoritarian regime. But authorities, as well as government dissidents, have reported an uptick in illegal mining. Human rights advocates say the operations violate labor laws. For the people around, for the miners, this is bread for today and hunger for tomorrow and very little bread for today. Violence between rival gangs prompts many miners to reconsider their trade. Another nearby mine in Bolivar captures gold through open pit operations on the surface. Miners sit for hours among numerous ponds as they try to find the valued mineral. The standing water fosters mosquitoes that transmit diseases such as malaria and dengue fever. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. An international climate conference in Paris is underway. The summit is the second round of talks to discuss how to manage one of Earth's biggest pollutants, plastic. And today's Andrew Thomas brings us more on the problem. United Nations scientists estimate that more than 9 billion tons of plastic waste was produced between 1950 and 2017. According to the UN's Environment Program, existing technology could reduce our plastic waste by 80% by 2040. The Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council's Plastic Waste Innovation Hub at the University College London wants to be a part of that goal. You have to be very careful about unintended consequences. So if there is a new polymer material that is going out into the market, then um, manufacturers have to think really carefully about the end of life of that material. In another lab at UCL, a researcher is able to separate plastic products using a special camera. Her computer screen breaks down the composition of the products into pixels. She can tell that this cutlery is made from potato starch. This plastic lid is made from a PLA polymer. The ideal solution would be to um, uh, be able to have systems to sort and degrade whether that's a chemical de degradation or a biological degradation. I don't think we can leave the amount of plastics that's currently in the oceans. A lot of food waste in the UK and many other countries is sent to anaerobic digesters. These tanks use bacteria to break down food waste into biomass. But a lot of food waste is put into compostable plastic bags, which dramatically cut the efficiency of these digesters. So we want to reduce those times. We want to reduce the time taken uh, to degrade plastic in anaerobic digesters to bring that into that three-week window, which is what anaerobic digesters run commercially at now. The Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee is meeting until June 2nd at the UNESCO headquarters in Paris. The group aims to develop a legally binding agreement on plastic pollution for land and sea. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, a rare rescue on Mount Everest. A Nepali Sherpa guide pulls a climber to safety from just below the summit. An artificial wave pool project is dividing Hawaiians. Opponents say it concerns more than just surfing. We'll be back soon with more on this debate. Welcome back to NTD News Today. A Malaysian climber narrowly survived after a Nepali Sherpa guide hauled him down from below the summit of Mount Everest in a very rare high-altitude rescue. 
This Nepali Sherpa guide is carrying a Malaysian climber on his back down from a part of Mount Everest called the Death Zone. Galji Sherpa says he saved the man's life. He was guiding a client to the summit in mid-May. That's when he saw the Malaysian climber clinging to a rope and shivering in the extreme cold. The death zone is a part of the mountain where temperatures can drop below minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Rescues are almost impossible there, authorities say. Galji convinced his client to give up the summit attempt and began his rare high-altitude rescue. It took me five to six hours to get from 8,500 meters above sea level to 7,900. It was very difficult. In places where it was rockier, we could not drag him. We had to carry him on our backs with difficulty. He eventually got help from another guide, and a helicopter then carried the climber down to base camp. It was important for us to rescue him, even from the summit. Money can be earned any time. Left like that, he could have died. We have saved his life by quitting the summit. The climber was put on a flight to Malaysia last week. The dramatic rescue comes as Nepal issued a record 478 permits for Everest during this year's climbing season. At least 12 climbers have died, and another five are still missing on Everest slopes. In Hawaii, a prominent surfer is seeking to build an artificial wave pool, but his idea has sparked division among the locals. Let's find out why. Brian Kilana is known in and around Hawaii for his top-notch surfing skills. The waterman is now driving a project to build a second artificial surf pool not far from the beach. People fly us all over the world to teach them what we know. And it's just a great place to stay home and really teach our own people what we know and not let that legacy branch out to the other parts of the world. The facility will use the latest technology to simulate the ideal surfing conditions. With it, Kiolana hopes to keep Hawaii's Olympic surfing hopefuls competitive. He says an hour of training in a wave pool allows more time on a surfboard than most surfers get in a week in the ocean gives us an opportunity to just put time in. Time on board is like a thing that we preach a lot to, to guests and just anybody that comes through is the more time you have on board, any board in a wave is going to be more beneficial for your surfing. His proposal is making waves among native Hawaiians. Opponents say another wave pool is pointless in Hawaii, the birthplace of surfing, where a good break is often just minutes away. They call the project a waste of water. Why do we need wave pools on an island surrounded by the ocean in the middle of a water crisis. These wave pools are not using salt water. They are using fresh drinking water, which is at this point a very, very precious resources resource that our residents, that Oahu residents and Kanaka Maoli cannot afford to waste. Locals also point to the commercialization of the modern sport. They say it could erode the cultural traditions of the islanders who have been riding the waves for centuries. To use water for anything other than drinking, to use this fresh water for recreational purposes, to make money, it goes against our culture. It goes against um, what's right at this point in history. The wave pool plan has landed in court. Hawaiians sued the project for damaging the ecology of a nearby beach. A hearing is scheduled for July. 
Now to a new episode of Strong Mind and Body. Let's look at some symptoms of iron deficiency and where to find the essential nutrient in food. Here's Entity's Gina Marie. The health of the human body requires a variety of nutrients. This includes iron. Iron has the important function of transporting oxygen throughout the body. If we're deficient, it can affect our health. There are many ways to supplement iron, but traditional Chinese medicine believes that the safest way is dietary supplements. However, it's important not to take too much. Iron presents health risks when taken in excess. The body can't produce iron on its own and it has to derive it from food. If iron intake is too low and can't make up for the body's daily loss, it can lead to anemia. Symptoms of iron deficiency include fatigue, cold hands and feet, tachycardia, shortness of breath, loss of appetite and brittle nails. Iron supplements can be taken under the guidance of a doctor. But for dietary supplementation, one can choose foods rich in iron to improve iron deficiency anemia. Iron-rich foods include beans such as red beans, peas, soybeans and black beans, seafood such as clams, vegetables such as spinach and broccoli. Spinach is also a good source of vitamin C which greatly improves the absorption of iron. Nuts such as hazelnuts, almonds and walnuts. Dried fruits such as raisins, black dates and red dates. The liver and other organs of most animals are rich in iron. To better absorb iron-rich foods, consider combining them with fruits and vegetables rich in vitamin C. Examples include kiwi fruit, orange, strawberry, tomato, and green leafy vegetables. Talk to your doctor or natural health professional if you believe iron may be lacking in your diet. You get a kick out of this. Goats in England are putting their best hoof forward. They're kicking off a 30-day race around the world. It's to raise money for the Zoological Society of London. Nine pygmy goats from the London Zoo are taking on two golden Guernsey goats from the Whipsnade Zoo. Together, they're hoping to walk, cycle, or swim a total of 40,000 kilometers or nearly 25,000 miles during the month of June. That's equivalent to the circumference of the globe. Fans can donate and track progress on the Zoological Society of London's website. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News.